from Alaska Teen Media Institute. I'm Jordan Kell. This is Zoom Room. A youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. Nat Herz spent almost a decade as a journalist, writing for the Anchorage Daily News and Alaska Public Media. Then one day, last June, he quit his job and decided to strike out on his own. He created the Northern Journal, a subscription-based newsletter that reports and provides commentary on Alaska's environment, energy industry, government, and politics. ATME producer Edison Wallace-Moyer sat down with Hearst to talk about setting out on his own as a freelance journalist, the changing political landscape of Alaska, and issues relevant to the youth. They spoke on December 1st, 2022. So how did you end up in this role? Um, I was in high school and I did a writing project my senior year of high school. And my teacher who was supervising the writing project um, sent my writing project to a kind of a respected writer around. Um, and the writer read the stuff that I'd written and he kind of wrote back some comments and his comments essentially boiled down to this is fine, but maybe you would be a better writer if you, uh, worked at your college newspaper after you graduate from high school. So I graduated from high school. I went to college and I applied to work at the newspaper in college and they were like you don't have any experience we're not gonna hire you but you can but you can write some freelance stories for us if you want so I did that and I just kind of kept showing up and then they were like okay we'll hire you and so um I did that uh I worked for the newspaper at my college for four years and then I got to the end of college and I was like, well, I don't really know what else there is that I could or would want to do professionally. Uh, so then I got a job as a reporter covering um, ski racing, like cross country ski racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and then I was like, okay, this seems pretty good. And so then I went and I got a master's degree in journalism and then Uh, That was in New York City, and I spent another year in New York City after that. And then I was kind of like, I don't think I really want to live here for the rest of my life. And I'm from Maine and was looking for sort of a um, smaller but still interesting place to live. And uh, and so I kind of applied around. I uh, got a job at the Anchorage Daily News and moved here in 2013 and have been have worked at the Anchorage Daily News or Alaska Public Media since then all the way up until June when I quit my job at the Anchorage Daily News and decided to try to make it as a freelance reporter. So what was that like, going from the Anchorage Daily News to being a freelance reporter? Um, well, I've only been a freelance reporter for about two and a half or three weeks. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I've... I've um, 
periodically done some freelance writing at, at like times throughout my career before. Um, and it's fun cause it's sort of either you get assigned things that you can say no to if you don't like them. So usually they're things that, you know, are fun or, um, they are, uh, stories that are your ideas that you cared enough about to either pitch to someone or publish yourself. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, um, I really enjoyed working uh, at like a newspaper and at the radio network as sort of someone who was was responsible for doing kind of whatever my bosses needed me to do on a given day. But now it's a little more of doing like the things that I want to do every day, which is really nice. Um, I don't know yet if it will make enough money for me to uh, be able to do it forever, but we're kind of testing it out right now. So you cover politics um, with some of your stories. And are there any important issues that you've seen going on in Alaska that you think youth should be paying attention to? That I think I should be paying? Oh, youth. 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 Yeah. Um, well, I think you should. youth should be paying attention to as much as they have attention spans for, um, which I guess if we're being realistic might not be the full breadth of issues but i mean i think the obvious the obvious one that comes to mind is education because i think you know it really seems like we're having a hard time um keeping schools open and paying for schools and paying for schools to operate in the way that many alaskans expect that they should um so that's that's a really obvious one and i think that um i think that our elected officials that make decisions about schools don't actually, you know, hear as much from people about education and funding for education as they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, if more people were paying attention and speaking up about it, I think that we might see more or different um, action being being taken. Um, I also think, I think climate change and global warming is another one that's like really specific to youth. I think, you know, that's an issue that adults should be paying attention to just as much because it's on adults to be the ones to be adults and make decisions that aren't going to leave the world a crappy place for their kids. Uh, But that being said, I think adults oftentimes are not acting with the younger people and future generations in mind on that particular issue. And, um, you know, I think if, youth in Alaska want different outcomes or different decisions being made than the ones that are being made, they're going to have to speak up and speak up more loudly. Uh, So are there any specific issues that you are paying special close attention to? I, you know, there are too many things happening around the state and in the news to just not, to not sort of limit yourself and focus on a few things in particular. So I really focus on uh, I really focus on things related to the environment and and to like our public lands and our public like waters here in Alaska. So I write a fair amount about uh, the fishing industry. Um, I write a lot about the oil industry and like renewable energy and how all that stuff fits together. Uh, and, and also the climate change issue. Um, and then I do write a fair amount about government and politics in the way that like our legislature and governor and even like city council um, 
are working. And then also as a um, side issue, I actually pay a lot of attention to uh, like international cross-country skiing. And I have like a podcast about that and we'll do some writing about it every once in a while because that's sort of a little special area of interest for me. Fun. So back to what we were talking about before, for youth who are not yet old enough to vote, would you say that they should still be engaged in politics? I think, I don't think they need to, I mean, like youth are, youths are youths. And so I think, you know, getting too obsessed with politics before you're 18 is probably, I mean, some people, that's probably cool and healthy, I think, for most people. Like, I think it's good to, you know, you don't want to get to 18 and have to sort of flip a switch and and start from scratch and learning about the way that, like, our government works and um, getting up to speed on the issues that might be important to you for voting. So I think I think it definitely makes sense to invest some time and energy into making sure that you have a basic understanding of the things that like are important to our democratic systems here. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that being said also like uh, youths in Alaska have enough to do with school and sports and extracurricular activities that, um, you know, I think, I, I think that people's interest in engagement like grows with their interest in engagement in the world. And when you're, not old enough to vote you're not old enough to do a lot of other things that would also connect you with like our government and current events and so i think it's okay you know i think the more people can get engaged and get interested in um like government and politics when they're younger great but i think it's okay for that to kind of develop naturally so what would you say the political scene is like in alaska and how does it differ from the rest of the u.s well, I've really only worked professionally in Alaska and in New York City, so I don't have the best basis for comparison, but I I think there are a few things I could say that are that feel unique about the Alaska political scene. I mean, I, I had a conversation with a political consultant the other day about why the fact that when Donald Trump endorsed uh, Sarah Palin and Kelly Shabaka, who was running against Lisa Murkowski, why when he told people to vote for them that that didn't do enough for them to actually win their elections. And he, he said it in kind of a funny way, which is that like, you know, people in Alaska know their politicians like pretty personally. Uh, and so Donald Trump isn't going to tell them anything that they didn't already know about Lisa Murkowski or whoever is running against her. And I think that kind of applies across the, the, the kind of political realm here in Alaska where, you know, there's a level of kind of access and openness um, where, you know, if you want to talk to people and get your message across, um, you know, it's it's not that hard usually you know you can email your legislator and actually hear back from them directly or a lot of them list their cell phone numbers online and and things like that i also think you know it is with that kind of level of um closeness also makes it i think more emotional where i think people feel really connected to 
they're elected officials in the decisions that they're making. And so sometimes, you know, when they don't go the way that they want, like people can really take it personally and it can get, it can get pretty intense. Um, so another big thing that's different about Alaska is in most places, um, in most places, most people are registered with a political party. So like they're either registered as a Democrat or they're registered as a Republican most of the time. In Alaska, one of the things that's unique here is that most people, I believe more than half, are not registered with the party. So they're what's known as like lowercase i independents, but the technical way that they're actually listed in, in the state voter registration database is either that they are nonpartisan or they are undeclared. Um, and, uh, you know, that I think that makes our politics a little bit more interesting because I think in a lot of places, you have this really kind of clear and and in a lot of cases you have this clear divide between the parties and you can kind of tell what people are going to do and how they're going to align and that's different here in Alaska because we have this big block of independent voters who I think are a little more inclined to be undecided and influenced and persuaded by what people who are running for office kind of have to say for themselves. So what you were saying about having more connection and access to our politicians, do you see that with journalists as well? Like, do you have more access? Do you think most journalists do? I do. Yeah. Um, Like, we could try to call the governor right now on his state cell phone if he wanted to. Um, I have his number. I don't think he's... I don't think he's inclined to pick it up all that often when I call, but he has on occasion. Um, And, you know, I've sent him a text. Um, And, you know, like I can do that with just about any state legislator, like state senators and representatives, like I'll text with them and they have their, I have their cell phone numbers. And that's like, you don't even really think about it. Like they're just normal people. Um, And, you know, same with almost anyone anywhere here, you know, like, corporate executives you can call them on a cell phone here a lot of times and you know you'll just like see them around at the store um and same thing with people in i don't know other realms like sports and school related things and yeah so it it, i think that's one of the really nice things about alaska is like you know it can be frustrating because like with, with alaska feeling like just one big small town where sometimes like you just wish you could write something and not have to like worry that the person that you wrote about, like you might run into them at the store. But I also think that that kind of keeps you accountable because I think, you know, if, if you don't have to worry about like being held accountable for what you write by the people that you write about, you might be inclined to write things that are maybe less fair or or less true. Um, And so I don't know. I think that's a, it's a nice thing about living here and working here. Recently, there's been a lot of polarizing of politics, and you said that we have a large independent block up here. Have you seen a difference in how our politics are changing compared to the rest of the U.S., and how how has that change in politics in general changed your reporting? Yeah, um, I think it has. I think politics, our politics have changed here in Alaska, like in the 10 years since I've been here, and I think with, you know, Donald Trump and and the way that and and kind of goes back to Sarah Palin actually and and sort of the way that the Republican Party has changed to become kind of more conservative and more populist, um, 
and just sort of harsher. I think the politics kind of on all sides has gotten less personal. Um, I think in other places you've seen politics actually get even more intense and polarized than other places, like with some of the kinds of like, you know, really inflammatory speeches that are happening and, and kind of the scary kind of language. I do think you saw that kind of change start to happen at a local level in Anchorage um, during the pandemic and the, the whole save Anchorage movement and some of like the backlash against like the closures and mandates and things like that. And some of those assembly meetings, like, actually seemed like really kind of scary um with people you know having really kind of nasty or racist or anti-semitic uh rhetoric um and and i think also like hearing a little bit about like how um there were people who were sort of attacking or being pretty threatening to journalists so i think it's happened i think that change has happened here to a certain degree, I haven't like personally found myself like in too many of those situations. I'm also like a pretty easygoing guy and, you know, have a fairly easy time like navigating situations with people who might not be the most trusting of reporters. Um, but I definitely feel like that kind of distrust has increased significantly in sort of the 10 years since I have moved here. What has that been like? Distrust of reporters. What? How? What? How does that affect your job and what you try and do? Um, that's a good question. I think that there's always sort of a distrust of reporters, and I think particularly among people who are sort of more on the like conservative or Republican side of the political spectrum. And I mean, that's always been there to a certain extent in the work that I've done here and. I think for me, because I've been here for a long time and because I've been working here for a long time, I think mm, a lot of reporting is about relationships and, you know, people might, and once, once you've sort of established a relationship with people, they tend to understand like who you are and where you're coming from. And they might know that you have a different like point of view as a reporter, but they also, I think in my case, there's a sense of trust that I'm, uh, I behave predictably and that they can trust me to accurately and fairly represent their point of view, even if it's like not my personal point of view. Um, I think for reporters that like don't have that kind of experience and relationships, it makes their jobs a lot harder. And I think, you know, for me, in some ways, that's like a big advantage because I think a lot of other reporters in Alaska, like, haven't been here as long, don't have those relationships. And so I, you know, I feel for folks in that situation. But I think for me, for the most part, I don't really find that I have big problems with people like distrusting reporters because most people see me as Nat her as like a human being doing my job rather than a person who kind of belongs to this sketchy class of people doing a job that they don't have any experience or history with or, or trust of, you know, it's a very individual thing. Journalists do seem to get a lot of hate. You said you haven't had many experiences with that, but 
how does that affect journalism and the job that tries to be done with that? You know, I most yeah, I mostly can only speculate about that because it doesn't happen to me that often. And I think also I work in a realm where I'm not necessarily spending a lot of time talking to random people on the street that I don't know and that don't already kind of have a opinion about who I am and, and a level of trust. Um, you know, it does, I think, generally speaking, people having like a lower opinion of reporters and media and journalists, like it does make the job harder because it might make people more inclined. You know, there are some stories where I have to go find sort of random people or voters. And, you know, sometimes people will be like, uh, you know, no, I don't want to talk to a reporter or, or more profane things that I wouldn't want to have recorded. But, um, but, you know, I am pretty consistently surprised by like people's patience and generosity to, to answer questions. And I think, I actually think that as much as, you know, polls and public opinion surveys might show distrust of reporters. I think people have distrust of quote unquote, like the institution of media. Um, but I think when you put a face on it and when I, and I, and I work pretty hard to show people that I'm not just like a random dude and someone that, you know, is just kind of a person who's shown up. Like I try to, generally make it clear through my words and actions when I'm approaching people that like, I'm someone who's been here for a long time. I own a house in Anchorage. Like I can relate to the things that they can relate to. And that, that really seems to help people connect with me, like as a human being rather than as like the name of my job. So real quick, let's back up into what is the job of a journalist? What, what is your guys's goal? What, what are you trying to do? Um, it depends on the day and it depends on the story. Um, I think, I think generally speaking, the job is giving people information they need to make informed decisions about how they live their lives and more specifically how they vote and how they participate in our democracy and how they interact in the world with other people. So there are a lot of different forms that can take, you know, you can be, doing very basic work of just giving people like really basic and, and essential information about the weather or, or um, decisions that have been made by powerful government officials or businesses having sales. Um, and, and um, for me, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the beginning of my career doing pretty basic stories about like, here's something that happened. Now I like to do stories that are a little bit more involved and that might fall more along the lines of here's something that you didn't expect, or here's a different way to look at a somewhat complicated issue that you might not have otherwise known in the past or even more directly here is some information or a story that really challenges some assumptions or ways of seeing the world that you have accumulated over time and so you know mostly that's that 
looks like gathering information from documents and uh, from talking to people and then sitting down at a computer and typing it up and finding a place to publish it. And, you know, it really can range quite dramatically from, you know, putting a very little amount of work in and finding one source of information versus like spending weeks or months even to really develop a complete understanding of something that's really complicated through a lot of reading and a lot of talking and or even going to places to see people or the way that policies are affecting people and then kind of synthesizing all of that and putting it together into a, a bigger story that conveys a much more complicated uh, picture of life and reality. So in your experience, has ranked choice voting changed local politics? Well, so far, we've really only had like two ranked choice elections, <laughs> yeah. right? The first one, the first one was in August. And then the most recent one was last month because now it's December. Um, I think you can definitely look at the results of, um, you know, both the U.S. Senate race that Lisa Murkowski won, the U.S. House race that Mary Peltola won, and a number of um, elections for the legislature. And I think you could definitely say that the results of those races, of many of those races, including almost certainly Mary Peltola's, very possibly even Lisa Murkowski's, and then a number of these races for state House and state Senate, you could say fairly clearly that the results were different this time around and that more moderate candidates were elected rather than more extreme candidates. I think, I think as far as how like having that new election system is changing the way that people are campaigning. I don't think that people have fully absorbed and carried out the, the lessons from the one election we had in August and then obviously the one that we had in November, obviously there were probably a lot of examples that people could have looked at outside of Alaska. They'd used ranked choice voting in San Francisco and New York city. Um, but I don't think that people really, you know, there were, there were a few things that were done during the election to kind of capitalize on this new system. But, um, and, and I think, you know, you saw Mary Peltola being like a very positive candidate and trying to get like clearly some second choice votes you actually saw um, Governor Mike Dunleavy sending out sort of some interesting mailers basically to try to get people to rank one of his opponents below the other so that he could basically be facing one of them in the final round. So there were some kind of techniques and strategies that were used during this election, but I think there's still a lot of learning that folks in the political system have to do about the best way to run under this system and how that different and how that differs from the old one. Well, two years ago, we voted to change to ranked choice voting. How do you think that came to be about? In, in the most sort of in the most literal way, it came about because there were some very savvy and strategic political operatives here in Alaska that didn't like the way our political system worked. And so they 
talked to sort of reform-minded folks around the country and came up with some new ideas about how to make Alaska's system different. And then they went out and they raised a bunch of money, like millions of dollars from some very rich people, namely uh, a like investor guy down in Texas and the Murdoch family, who you might have heard of Rupert Murdoch. He owns the New York Post and like Fox. Um, and so his 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 son uh his older son and his older son's wife uh they feel very badly about the way that their media empire has kind of helped destroy american democracy so they're giving now giving a lot of money to organizations that are trying to like fix american democracy so they actually donated a lot of money to the ranked choice voting campaign um so yeah i mean i think alaska's voting system beforehand was I think people did not really think that much about how Alaska's voting system was set up beforehand in ways that really made it hard for moderate candidates to get through, namely because the Republican Party primary is only open to Republican and independent voters and not Democrats. And so that stage in the election process would often weed out more moderate candidates and leave the Republican candidate as a more extreme candidate, but they would still win because Republicans tend to be more popular in Alaska. So I think, you know, there was some frustration among that in some, you know, small corners of Alaska's political world. And they managed to raise enough money to be able to run a very effective campaign to convince Alaskans that their interests were not being served by the system. And they also made some reforms or I should say they also made some changes to the way that spending of money on politics and campaigns in Alaska is disclosed and, and to make it more transparent. And I think that was also a big part of why people voted for this new election system to pass. So you mentioned San Francisco and New York also having ranked choice voting. Do you think this is a new frontier as a system of voting? It definitely is seeming to be getting some traction and growing around the country. Um, it is also used in Maine. And then voters in Nevada also approved a citizens initiative uh, just in this election last month to adopt uh, the same election system as Alaska's. Um, that's not like a finalized decision because the voters i guess have to approve it a second time in nevada which is kind of weird but you know i think one of the things i learned while i was reporting about ranked choice voting in 2020 when the campaign to make it happen was happening was that you know it's just a way for people who are frustrated with the political system to try out a different political system and see if it works better and you know there's nothing in and of itself that makes like the old system or ranked choice voting like a better a, a quote-unquote better system it's like y you know it depends on what outcome you want whether you would dis whether you would say that the system is better or worse and so you know i think that people are going to get to decide after this has been in place you know now for one election and and certainly for another election before uh there's a 
attempt to repeal it, um, whether they really like it or not, and whether it should be the new frontier or not. And I, you know, I think that is actually one of the cool things about our system is like, you know, if you don't like it, then you can go out and try to get 50% plus one of the population to change it. And if you can do that, um, then it'll go back to the way it was and, and we have a choice. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. And get this, while we are based in Anchorage, you don't have to be here to work with us. A lot of the work we do is done remotely. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Edison's interview with freelance journalist Nat Hurst. So then can you talk about the Northern Journal and what inspired you to create it? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I worked at the Anchorage Daily News for five years and at Alaska Public Media for several years. And um, I really liked working at those places. And I think that they do really good and important work. But I also think that uh, media outlets and, and organizations are obligated to are obligated to cover certain stories and write about breaking news and kind of fill the space that they have and keep their readers engaged in a way that I felt like was too demanding for me and my you know personal way of doing things and I I wanted to be able to slow down both for sort of myself and because I felt like there were important stories that like I didn't have time for when I was working in those places. So I took some time off and then um, there's this, <clears throat> there's this new platform for reporters to publish self-published newsletters called Substack. And um, it basically Substack is sort of a, a tech startup and what they do is they basically give you all the tools you need to be a self-published newsletter person and so they deal with all of the technology and the design and the layout and the the subscription situation and the payment and the tracking of who's reading and where they're coming from and all that and um then they do that uh, in exchange for 10% of the money that people pay you for subscriptions. So I wanted to see how well this would work and if people would subscribe and if people would, you know, uh, actually pay money to support the kinds of stories that I produce. And the answer to that question was yes so far. Um, I have like more than 100 paying subscribers after only about two and a half weeks of um doing this newsletter and 
um, basically I am both the editor and the reporter and the publisher. And, you know, um, I talk to a lot of people to try to get an understanding of, um, you know, what stories are happening and what stories I should choose. But ultimately like I get to choose and there's no one telling me that I have to publish anything like at a certain time or in a certain way. And I have a lot of flexibility as far as some, you know, being able to leave the office when I want to or work when I want to. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I miss, I miss having good colleagues and being in an office, but it's also really nice to have that kind of flexibility. And, um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, I've been sort of doing a mix of stories about different things and, and of different lengths and, and different sort of styles. And, um, it's a little bit of an experiment right now to see what people are most interested in and, and what feels like the best use of my time. On a broader note, how do you approach writing an article? Um, I don't know that I've ever had to explain that to anyone. So that's an interesting question. I, I have, I had much more trouble with it. I think earlier in my career, I would kind of like hit walls and get stuck. But, um, you know, at this point, it's a very second nature type thing where, you know, there's a, 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 a stage in the process of just gathering all the information and making sure that you know what you need to know and have the information and the quotes that you need to be able to write the story in a way where you're going to be able to say everything that you need to say and be confident enough that you're not wrong. And once I do that, unless it's a really, you know, pretty long or involved story, um, I just sit down and write it. And I, I, you know, there's a, there's a technique in the journalism world where it's, it's this like inverted pyramid style where you kind of put the very most important facts at the very top of your story and just kind of, write everything in order of importance and it just for me at, at this point in my career it, that stuff kind of flows pretty easily definitely for longer and more involved stories sometimes I do try to you know make like a little outline and to be a little bit more organized in the way that I arrange my you know I'll have transcripts and notes on my interviews and things like that but that's you know that's that's not most of the time um, most of the time I'm just sitting down and kind of dashing it off when you're writing, how are you thinking about readers? And how do you think most journalists, like the ADN when you're working for them, when when are they looking at readers? When are they looking at noise? When are they deciding the readers need to know this or the readers want to know this? I mean, I think almost everything um, media organizations do is guided by the readers, or at least it should be. And I think, you know, Sometimes you get tension between like a reporter might get involved in a story and then they get pretty close to the figures or the people that are involved in the story. And then they might, you know, feel obligated to do things that are more serving the folks that are in the story versus readers. But generally speaking, that's where sort of an editor would be involved and say, oh, like, uh, wait a minute, we need to back up here. Like, why? why are we writing this or why are we searching for this when we think that, when I think that, you know, the readers might be more interested. I mean, ultimately it's a, it's an industry and a business where um, you have to be responsive to readers because they're the ones that are like funding your work. Um, and that's, that's actually changed um, significantly, honestly, like just in the time that I've, 
worked in this industry in in the past um newspapers in particular but other news organizations made a lot more money from advertising revenue and so they weren't necessarily always doing work that readers that you know they, they, their interests were not necessarily always aligned with readers because you know readers were sort of the eyeballs that the advertisers wanted access to but they weren't actually the ones that you know were paying a lot of money to support reporters salaries um and so it just meant that you know media organizations were less accountable to to their audiences since you know the past 15 20 years when ad revenue has really kind of crashed for newspapers in particular like you know we they used to make a lot of money from classified ads but now there's like craigslist and facebook marketplace and you know a lot of big like brands can advertise on like google and social media instead of in the newspaper um the ad revenue side of things for for media organizations has really gone down and now they make a lot more money from reader subscriptions which makes them a lot more responsive and accountable to readers because if they're not doing stories that readers want to read and that readers are willing to pay for then nobody's going to pay for this stuff and you know then you go out of business so um you know i think if you went to the anchorage daily news you would see like a, a big video screen that they have up showing the number of people that are reading each of the stories on the website and they're very attuned to here's what readers are interested in here's maybe what they're not interested in and and that's not you know they also they also feel a sense of like public purpose where sometimes there's maybe something that's not going to be like a blockbuster hit with readers but it still feels like a really important thing for people to have information about and and for there to be sort of public awareness of maybe it's like a homelessness issue or a, some kind of other you know government issue that might not be too scintillating um so they definitely like will kind of divert from maybe you know because it's like if we just did the things that readers wanted like we would just you know publish cat videos all the time <laughs> it would be like buzzfeed and so there is a balance there um i think um for me you know there's a, there's like direct i get direct feedback from my subscribers you know they'll call me or text me or email me and tell me what they think or they'll you know if it's a really good story you know maybe more people will actually buy subscriptions and stuff like that um and if they don't think it's worthwhile they might let me know that too when you're writing in the northern journal do you think about youth readers no Do you think um I, I can I can say more about that if you want. <laughs> yes, please. Um <laughs> yeah, I think um you know, I would love to have more youth readers, but I think mostly I'm writing for people that are like really involved and really engaged and really invested in current events and and the kind of issues that I follow, which are kind of environmental and and business and governmental issues. And so you know, um, youth are just not necessarily, no, youth are, are not especially engaged in those realms. Not to say that they aren't, and I would love to have more youth readers, but also, um, you know, I'm hitting people up to, you know, pay $100 for a subscription. And I, you know, I think uh, youth in Alaska probably have much more important things they could be spending their money on, like, you know, Pokemon and laser tag, I guess. Probably not those things, but you might have some ideas. <laughs> Um, do you think most news outlets are considering youth 
readers? No. For the general idea that we don't pay attention as much. Yeah, I mean, I think um, kind of the the reasons that I just listed off. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, most news organizations like are pretty focused on staying alive and and finding the audience that is going to be really engaged and that is going to spend money on the product so that they can keep, you know, paying reporters to make the product. I do think that, you know, there is concern in the media industry that the audience is old and getting older. And so there are definitely like efforts to reach younger audience members, but I don't think that like extends, you know, I think they're looking for people in their twenties and thirties who are, you know, young professionals with disposable income that they can use to buy subscriptions rather than like youth who, um, you know, might be interested in their spare time, but probably aren't going to like help support the underlying business model. I think if you asked the people who work at the newspaper, would they like to have more accessible stories and information for young people and to have more young people engaged with what they do, I think they would say absolutely they do. I just don't think on their list of many priorities, it's that high on the priority list because there are other things that have to be higher. What do you think the the Northern Journal and the work that you've been doing provides to readers that isn't already publicly available to them? Mm. Um, well, hopefully most of it. You know, it's like I don't want to tell people things that they already know. I The flip side is a lot of the things that I write are things that are technically publicly available. And if you really, really wanted to know about it, you could probably go find it. But most people don't know where to look or they don't have time to look. And it's my job to find these kinds of things out and to know them before anybody else, because definitely like in this business, like news, like, like knowing things first is what matters. And, and if you can tell people something that they don't know, that's what sort of makes you valuable in the kind of marketplace of information and ideas. So you know, I, I'm not generally speaking, like finding things that other people couldn't find. I just kind of find them first and maybe a little more effectively than, than most other people, because it's my job and I, and I know where to look and I'm actually looking most of the time. There are a lot of new news contraptions out there. Um, a lot of things that are just something different that we haven't necessarily been acquainted with yet do you think those are doing the same are providing new things or are finding a way to spin old things um give me a couple examples um the alaska beacon i've heard about any others that's about all i've got okay well and northern journal (laughs) yeah northern journal i mean i think a little of both i think like the Alaska Beacon, for example, like they're part of this movement toward like nonprofit journalism. And, you know, they're not really doing any work that's different. Like they're writing stories and they're posting them on the internet. They have a podcast. Um, me, like I'm using a new sort of platform because I'm emailing people and sending a newsletter. Uh, and I'm not like publishing in necessarily like a newspaper, but I'm actually like using Northern Journal and and I'm distributing my stories through the Alaska Beacon so that actually they are appearing in newspapers. And I mean, I think that, and same with the Alaska Beacon, their work is um, licensed in a way where newspapers and other outlets can republish it for free. 
Um, so I think it's the answer to your question is that it's a little bit of both. These are ultimately organizations and individuals that are actually producing work that's very similar to the work that has been produced in the past, but they're there and they exist because the work that's been done in the past is not actually as viable and doable as it once was because the economics and the business realities of the industry have changed where like newspapers and TV stations maybe aren't making as much money as they were in the past to pay for the amount of work that was done before. So that works having to be done by different people in different places. So speaking of change, can you give any predictions on where journalism is going? Um, I can give observations that, I mean, I think you're right. There are a lot of sort of new platforms or, or contraptions in your word that, you know, are, are trying new ways of kind of doing the same things. I think, you know, there's, there's been a lot of fear in the world of journalism and media broadly that, you know, media is dying out and that kind of the, the old values of media of, you know, neutrality and, shoe leather journalism where you're kind of working hard and going out there and talking to a lot of people and getting documents and all that kind of stuff that that's kind of dying in place of social media and tweets and short things because people have short attention spans but I actually am not that pessimistic about it I think like people there is sort of part of our society and culture that like gravitates toward those sort of short form hot takes easily digestible stuff but i also think that people do value old school journalism and hard facts and truth as much now as they do ever because in some ways because there's so much like noise now in those other forms of information and media that like people actually want old school sources that like they can turn to for like newsworthy stuff uh, that they can trust. And so um, I, you know, I don't know. I think that's kind of where we're going and I think that's like where we'll continue to go. And I think, you know, you may continue to see sort of different packaging for journalism. Um, but I kind of anticipate that, the actual like journalism that's getting done and that's valued is, is not going to change all that much from what we've seen in the past and what we have now. Do you have any tips for anyone who's looking to start something <clears throat> new like the Northern journal? Um, spend 10 years working at a newspaper. So you have a lot of practice <laughs> before you go out on your own and, and try to make money. Um, I mean, I think the best advice you can give for anyone doing any kind of journalism is to just do it and like go out and do it and do it and do it over and over and over again and practice and also find people to work with that can give you really good feedback uh and and help kind of guide you along and tell you when you're doing a good job and when you're doing a bad job um and yeah i think i don't think that starting a new thing like is for everyone. And I also don't think that it's something that you should do lightly. If you're, 
if it's going to be your job. Like, I think it's not something that you can do unless you have like a lot of experience and a lot of connections. And I'm not saying that like to brag, I'm just saying it because like, I think I would be worried that people, other people who tried it sort of without like the resources and history that I have, like might have a hard time. I think, you know, one of the ways you could deal with that is if you did something like that as like a side project, you know, so that you have something to fall back on. And I think, you know, I'm sure that there are young people or different or young or, or, um, kind of entrepreneurial people out there that probably do have some like really good ideas for starting new platforms or technologies that probably would be much more successful than Northern Journal. So, you know, I would love for, I would love to kind of see those pop up, but I also think that, you know, at least for kind of the model that I'm pursuing, like the value that I am hoping that people will see in it is like kind of the old school, just the way that I do the work and the quality of the like information that I give them. And that's those qualities are things. Those those are things that have taken me a whole heck of a lot of practice to, to get competent at and not to say that I'm especially competent, but just that, you know, um, if, if I tried to do this like 10 years ago, I probably would fail. And then lastly, what do you, have you been watching the Alaska Daily? I watched all of the Alaska <laughs> Daily. Did you watch the Alaska yes. Daily? What do you think of it so far? What did you think of it so far? I have been thoroughly enjoying seeing Anchorage on the screen. Yeah, I watched the first episode and I actually was like, I kind of didn't like it. I was like, this is way too cheesy mm-hmm. and heavy handed and just like, you know, there's still, there are all kinds of like things about it that just like make me cringe. Like, you know, the log cabin city hall kind of thing. Um, but you know, I watched the first episode and I was like, eh. and then I watched the second episode and I was like, eh. and then I watched the third episode and the fourth episode and I was like, oh, okay. Okay. And so I, I, you know, in some ways it feels completely like ridiculous and cheesy where it's like, you know, it's so self-involved and the reporters are so self-involved talking about like, you know, the power of local journalism and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, like, just like go like get a life and like, you know, drink a beer and read a book, like whatever, like get over yourself. That being said, um, it's really hard not to like get caught up in appreciating and, and admiring your world and your job and your profession being like romanticized on screen that way. And, and you just like, I, I can't escape, you know, feeling really moved by it in some ways and, and agree that, you know, the shots of Anchorage and like, it's like they made a model newsroom of the Anchorage daily news and, and just, you know, you could sort of see elements of yourself in it that like feel really accurate and and like you feel seen in a way that's like pretty nice so um i by the time i got to the end of episode six i was like give me more of this like i'll (laughs) I'll watch as much of it as as you can make but it, it it took a little bit for me to get there for sure well thank you so much this has been so much fun that is all the questions i've got i'm happy to answer more if you can come up with any at any time so yeah thanks for having me here thank you what are you going to do with this uh, audio? Um, so it is going to be edited. Uh, 
and obviously and then put R- run on run as the next episode of alaska daily <laughs> That was at me producer Edison Wallace Moyer speaking with freelance journalist Nat Hurst. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman, with additional music from Devin Schreckengost. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Jordan Kell. Thanks for listening.